Did you know The Sleepy Bookshelf has a sibling podcast with all original stories and meditations? It's called Get Sleepy, and I'm sure you'll love it. I even narrate some of the stories. Just search for Get Sleepy in your preferred podcast player. Thank you, and sweet dreams. Good evening. And welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host, and I'm so glad to have you here with me. This evening we'll be continuing with Little Women, but before we dive back into our story, let's put the day behind us. Place yourself in a little rowing boat on a lake surrounded by majestic mountains. The weather is pleasantly warm and you're bobbing about with no place in particular to go. The sky above is cloudless and blue. The lake is still and clear. There are sailboats and other rowing boats around you, but distant enough that you can't see any people. Roll your shoulders a few times, back and forth, and notice how relaxed your body is. Breathe in the deepest breath you have taken all day, and take a moment now to feel how secure and peaceful you feel here in your little boat on the lake. Stay here while I go through our recap. Our last episode was a sad one. The family were preparing for Beth's departure from life, and while she remained happy and fearless till the end, the family were nonetheless devastated by their loss. Joe had been a constant devotee to her sister, never letting the fire in her room go out and sleeping on the couch to ensure she was always there for whatever she needed. In her last words to Joe, Beth encouraged her to take up the mantle for mommy and father in her absence, to make sure home remained happy and comfortable, which Joe took to heart and determined to do. Meanwhile, Laurie had come away from his grandfather's with his mind set to make something of himself off the back of Amy's scolding in Nice. He turned to music and went to Vienna to compose a requiem, but found his mind wandering. Then he tried an opera with Joe as the heroine, but he could only think of her funny ways, not her heroic ones, and he began drifting towards a certain blonde muse instead. He wrote to Joe one more time to ensure her answer was still no before resolving to put aside his old flame in the hopes that another March sister may rekindle his romance. Joe had asked Laurie to promise to keep Amy company and so they began writing again, each reveling in their correspondence. Amy's party had left Nice for Vevey to escape the heat, and the letter from home breaking the news of Beth's death to Amy was delayed. Laurie made plans to go to her as soon as he heard. And that's where we pick back up tonight, with Laurie landing at Vevey, desperate to see Amy. So sit back and relax as I turn to the next pages of Little Women. Chapter 41 Learning to Forget Continued Laurie knew Vevey well, and as soon as the boat touched the little quay, he hurried along the shore to La Tour, where the Carols were living on pension. 
The garçon was in despair that the whole family had gone to take a promenade on the lake. But no, the blonde mademoiselle might be in the chateau garden. If monsieur would give himself the pain of sitting down, a flash of time should present her. But monsieur could not wait even a flash of time, and in the middle of the speech, departed to find Mademoiselle himself. A pleasant old garden sat on the borders of the lovely lake, with chestnuts rustling overhead, ivy climbing everywhere, and the black shadow of the tower falling far across the sunny water. At one corner of the wide, low wall was a seat, and here Amy often came to read or work or console herself with the beauty all about her. She was sitting here that day, leaning her head on her hand with a homesick heart and heavy eyes, thinking of Beth and wondering why Laurie did not come. She did not hear him cross the courtyard beyond, nor see him pause in the archway that led from the subterranean path into the garden. He stood a minute, looking at her with new eyes, seeing what no one had ever seen before, the tender side of Amy's character. Everything about her mutely suggested love and sorrow, the blotted letters in her lap, the black ribbon that tied up her hair, the womanly pain and patience in her face. Even the little ebony cross at her throat seemed pathetic to Laurie, for he had given it to her, and she wore it as her only ornament. If he had any doubts about the reception she would give him, they were set at rest the minute she looked up and saw him. For dropping everything, she ran to him, exclaiming in a tone of unmistakable love and longing, Oh, Laurie, Laurie, I knew you'd come to me. I think everything was said and settled then, for as they stood together, quite silent for a moment, with the dark head bent down protectingly over the light one, Amy felt that no one could comfort and sustain her so well as Laurie, and Laurie decided that Amy was the only woman in the world who could fill Joe's place and make him happy. He did not tell her so, but she was not disappointed for both felt the truth, were satisfied, and gladly left the rest to silence. In a minute, Amy went back to her place, and while she dried her tears, Laurie gathered up the scattered papers, finding in the sight of sundry well-worn letters and suggestive sketches good omens for the future. As he sat down beside her, Amy felt shy again and turned rosy red at the recollection of her impulsive greeting. I couldn't help it. I felt so lonely and sad. I was so very glad to see you. Such a surprise to look up and find you, just as I was beginning to fear you wouldn't come, she said, trying in vain to speak quite naturally. I came the minute I heard wish I could say something to comfort you for the loss of dear little Beth, but I can only feel and... He could not get any further, for he too turned bashful all of a sudden and did not quite know what to say. He longed to lay Amy's head down on his shoulder and tell her to have a good cry, but he did not dare, so took her hand instead and gave it a sympathetic squeeze that was better than words. You needn't say anything. This comforts me, she said softly. Beth is well, 
and happy. I mustn't wish her back, but I dread the going home much as I long to see them. We won't talk about it now, for it makes me cry. I want to enjoy you while you stay. You needn't go right back, need you? Not if you want me to. I do so much. Aunt and Flo are very kind, but you seem like one of the family. It would be so comfortable to have you for a little while. Amy spoke and looked so like a homesick child whose heart was full that Laurie forgot his bashfulness all at once and gave her just what she wanted, the petting she was used to and the cheerful conversation she needed. Poor little soul, you know it's as if you grieved yourself half sick. I'm going to take care of you, so don't cry anymore. Come and walk about with me. The wind is too chilly for you to sit still, he said in the half-caressing, half-commanding way that Amy liked as he tied on her hat, drew her arm through his, and began to pace up and down the sunny walk under the new-leaved chestnuts. He felt more at ease upon his legs, and Amy found it pleasant to have a strong arm to lean upon, a familiar face to smile at her, and a kind voice to talk delightfully for her alone. The quaint old garden had sheltered many pairs of lovers and seemed expressly made for them. So sunny and secluded was it, with nothing but the tower to overlook them and the wide lake to carry away the echo of their words as it rippled by below. For an hour, this new pair walked and talked, all rested on the wall, enjoying the sweet influences which gave such a charm to time and place. And when an unromantic dinner bell warned them away, Amy felt as if she left her burden of loneliness and sorrow behind her in the chateau garden. The moment Mrs. Carroll saw the girl's altered face, she was illuminated with a new idea and exclaimed to herself, Now I understand it all. The child has been pining for young Lawrence. Bless my heart. I never thought of such a thing. With praiseworthy discretion, the good lady said nothing and betrayed no sign of enlightenment, but cordially urged Laurie to stay and begged Amy to enjoy his society, for it would do her more good than so much solitude. Amy was a model of docility, and as her aunt was a good deal occupied with Flo, she was left to entertain her friend and did it with more than her usual success. At Nice, Laurie had lounged and Amy had scolded. At Vevey, Laurie was never idle, but always walking, riding, boating or studying in the most energetic manner, while Amy admired everything he did and followed his example as far and as fast as she could. He said the change was owing to the climate, and she did not contradict him, being glad of a like excuse for her own recovered health and spirits. The invigorating air did them both good, and much exercise worked wholesome changes in their minds as well as their bodies. It seemed to get clearer views of life and duty up there among the everlasting hills. The fresh winds blew away desponding doubts, delusive fancies, and moody mists. The warm spring sunshine brought out all sorts of aspiring ideas tender hopes and happy thoughts. The lake seemed to wash away the troubles of the past and the grand old mountains to look 
benignly down upon them, saying, Little children, love one another. In spite of the new sorrow, it was a very happy time, so happy that Laurie could not bear to disturb it by a word. It took him a little while to recover from his surprise at the cure of his first, and as he had firmly believed, his last and only love. He consoled himself for the seeming disloyalty by the thought that Joe's sister was almost the same as Joe's self, and the conviction that it would have been impossible to love any other woman but Amy so soon and so well. His first wooing had been of the tempestuous order, and he looked back upon it as if through a long vista of years, with a feeling of compassion blended with regret. He was not ashamed of it, but put it away as one of the bittersweet experiences of his life, for which he could be grateful when the pain was over. His second wooing, he resolved, should be as calm and simple as possible. There was no need of having a scene, hardly any need of telling Amy that he loved her. She knew it without words and had given him his answer long ago. It all came about so naturally that no one could complain, and he knew that everybody would be pleased, even Joe. But when our first little passion has been crushed, we are apt to be wary and slow in making a second trial. So Laurie let the days pass, enjoying every hour, and leaving to chance the utterance of the word that would put an end to the first and sweetest part of his new romance. He had rather imagined that the denouement would take place in the chateau garden by moonlight and in the most graceful and decorous manner, but it turned out exactly the reverse, for the matter was settled on the lake at noonday in a few blunt words. They had been floating about all morning, from gloomy St. Gingolf to sunny Montreux, with the Alps of Savoy on one side, Mont St. Bernard and the Dent du Midi on the other, pretty Vevey in the valley, and Lucerne upon the hill beyond, a cloudless blue sky overhead, and the bluer lake below, dotted with the picturesque boats that looked like white-winged gulls. They had been talking of Bonavard as they glided past Chillon, and of Rousseau as they looked up at Clarence, where he wrote his Heloise. Neither had read it, but they knew it was a love story, and each privately wondered if it was half as interesting as their own. Amy had been dabbling her hand in the water during the little pause that fell between them, and when she looked up, Laurie was leaning on his oars, with an expression in his eyes that made her say hastily, merely for the sake of saying something. You must be tired. Rest a little and let me row. It will do me good, for since you came I have been altogether lazy and luxurious. I'm not tired, but you may take an oar if you like. There's room enough, though I have to sit nearly in the middle else it won't trim returned Laurie, as if he rather liked the arrangement. Feeling that she had not mended matters much, Amy took the offered third of a seat, shook her hair over her face, and accepted an oar. She rowed as well as she did many other things, and though she used both hands, and Laurie but one, the oars kept time, and the boat went smoothly through the water. How well we pull together, don't we? said Amy, 
who objected to silence just then. So well that I wish we might always pull in the same boat. Will you, Amy? Very tenderly. Yes, Laurie. Very low. Then they both stopped rowing and unconsciously added a pretty little tableau of human love and happiness to the dissolving views reflected in the lake. Chapter 42 All Alone It was easy to promise self-abnegation when self was wrapped up in another and heart and soul were purified by a sweet example. But when the helpful voice was silent, the daily lesson over, the beloved presence gone, and nothing remained but loneliness and grief, then Jo found her promise very hard to keep. How could she comfort father and mother when her own heart ached with a ceaseless longing for her sister? How could she make the house cheerful when all its light and warmth and beauty seemed to have deserted it when Beth left the home for the new? And where in the world could she find some useful, happy work to do that would take the place of the loving service which had been its own reward? She tried in a blind, hopeless way to do her duty, secretly rebelling against it all the while, for it seemed unjust that her few joys should be lessened, her burdens made heavier, and life get harder and harder as she toiled along. Some people seemed to get all the sunshine and some all the shadow. It was not fair, for she tried more than Amy to be good, but never got any reward, only disappointment, trouble, and hard work. Poor Joan. These were dark days to her, for something like despair came over her when she thought of spending all her life in that quiet house, devoted to humdrum cares, a few small pleasures, and the duty that never seemed to grow any easier. I can't do it. I wasn't meant for a life like this, and I know I shall break away and do something desperate if someone doesn't come and help me, she said to herself when her first efforts failed and she fell into the moody, miserable state of mind which often comes when strong wills have to yield to the inevitable. Someone did come and help her, though Joe did not recognize her good angels at once because they wore familiar shapes and used the simple spells best fitted to poor humanity. Often she started up at night, thinking Beth called her, and when the sight of the little empty bed made her cry with the bitter cry of unsubmissive sorrow. Oh, Beth, come back, come back. She did not stretch out her yearning arms in vain. For as quick to hear her sobbing as she had been to hear her sister's faintest whisper, her mother came to comfort her, not with words only, but the patient tenderness that soothes by a touch, tears that were mute reminders of a greater grief than Joe's, and broken whispers more eloquent than prayers, because hopeful resignation went hand in hand with natural sorrow. Sacred moments when heart talked to heart in the silence of the night, turning affliction to a blessing which chastened grief and strengthened love. Feeling this, Joe's burden seemed easier to bear. 
duty grew sweeter and life looked more endurable, seen from the safe shelter of her mother's arms. When aching heart was a little comforted, troubled mind likewise found help. For one day she went to the study and leaning over, the good grey head lifted to welcome her with a tranquil smile. She said very humbly, Father, talk to me as you did to Beth. I need it more than she did, for I'm all wrong. My dear, nothing can comfort me like this, he answered with a falter in his voice and both arms round her as if he too needed help and did not fear to ask for it. Then, sitting in Beth's little chair close behind him, Joe told her troubles, the resentful sorrow for her loss, the fruitless efforts that discouraged her, the want of faith that made life look so dark, and all the sad bewilderment which we call despair. She gave him entire confidence. He gave her the help she needed, and both found consolation in the act. For the time had come when they could talk together, not only as father and daughter, but as man and woman, able and glad to serve each other with mutual sympathy as well as mutual love. Happy, thoughtful times there in the old study, which Joe called the church of one member, and from which she came with fresh courage, recovered cheerfulness, and a more submissive spirit. For the parents who had taught one child to meet death without fear were trying to teach another to accept life without despondency or distrust, and to use its beautiful opportunities with gratitude and power. Other helps had Joe, humble, wholesome duties and delights that would not be denied their part in serving her, and which she slowly learned to see and value. Brooms and dishcloths never could be as distasteful as they once had been, for Beth had presided over both, and something of her housewifely spirit seemed to linger around the little mop and the old brush, never thrown away. As she used them, Jo found herself humming the songs Beth used to hum, imitating Beth's orderly ways and giving the little touches here and there that kept everything fresh and cozy, which was the first step towards making home happy, though she didn't know it till Hannah said with an approving squeeze of the hand, You thoughtful creature. You're determined we shan't miss that dear lamb if you can help it. We don't say much, but we see it. And the Lord will bless you for it. See if he don't. As they sat sewing together, Joe discovered how much improved her sister Meg was, how well she could talk, how much she knew about good, womanly impulses, thoughts, and feelings, how happy she was in husband and children, and how much they were all doing for each other. Marriage is an excellent thing after all. I wonder if I should blossom out half as well as you have if I tried, said Joan as she constructed a kite for Demi in the topsy-turvy nursery. It's just what you need to bring out the tender, womanly half of your nature, Joe. You are like a chestnut burr, prickly outside, but silky soft within and a sweet kernel, if one can only get at it. Love will make you show your heart one day, and then the rough burr will fall off. Frost opens chestnut burrs, ma'am, and it takes a good shake to bring them down. 
boys go nutting and I don't care to be bagged by them, returned Joe, pasting away at the kite, which no wind that blows would ever carry up, for Daisy had tied herself on as a bob. Meg laughed, for she was glad to see a glimmer of Joe's old spirit, but she felt it her duty to enforce her opinion by every argument in her power, and the sisterly chats were not wasted, especially as two of Meg's most effective arguments were the babies whom Joe loved tenderly. Grief is the best opener of some hearts, and Joe was nearly ready for the bag, a little more sunshine to ripen the nut, then not a boy's impatient shake, but a man's hand reached up to pick it gently from the burr and find the kernel, sound and sweet. If she suspected this, she would have shut up tight and been more prickly than ever. Fortunately, she wasn't thinking about herself, so when the time came, down she dropped. Now, if she had been the heroine of a moral storybook, she ought at this period of her life to have become quite saintly, renounced the world, and gone about doing good in a mortified bonnet with tracts in her pocket. But you see, Jo wasn't a heroine. She was only a struggling human girl, like hundreds of others, and she just acted out her nature, being sad, cross, listless, or energetic as the mood suggested. It's highly virtuous to say we'll be good, but we can't do it all at once, and it takes a long pull, a strong pull, and a pull altogether before some of us even get our feet set in the right way. Jo had got so far. She was learning to do her duty and to feel unhappy if she did not, but to do it cheerfully, ah, that was another thing. She had often said she wanted to do something splendid, no matter how hard, and now she had her wish for what could be more beautiful than to devote her life to father and mother trying to make home as happy to them as they had to her. And if difficulties were necessary to increase the splendor of the effort, what could be harder for a restless, ambitious girl than to give up her own hopes, plans, and desires and cheerfully live for others? Providence had taken her at her word, Here was the task, not what she had expected, but better because self had no part in it. Now, could she do it? She decided she would try, and in her first attempt, she found the helps I have suggested. Still another was given her, and she took it, not as a reward, but as a comfort as Christian took the refreshment afforded by the little arbor where he rested as he climbed the hill called Difficulty. Why don't you write? That always used to make you happy, said her mother once when the desponding fit overshadowed Joe. I've no heart to write, and if I had, nobody cares for my things. We do? Write something for us, and never mind the rest of the world. Try it, dear. I'm sure it would do you good, and please us very much. Don't believe I can. But Jo got out her desk and began to overhaul her half-finished manuscripts. An hour afterward, her mother peeped in, and there she was, scratching away with her black pinafore on, and an absorbed expression which caused Mrs. March to smile and slip away, well pleased with the success of her suggestion. 
Joe never knew how it happened. Something got into that story that went straight to the hearts of those who read it. For when her family had laughed and cried over it, her father sent it, much against her will, to one of the popular magazines, and to her utter surprise, it was not only paid for, but others requested. Letters from several persons whose praise was honor followed the appearance of the little story. Newspapers copied it, and strangers as well as friends admired it. For a small thing, it was a great success, and Joe was more astonished than when her novel was commended and condemned all at once. I don't understand it. What can there be in a simple little story like that to make people praise it so? She said, quite bewildered. There's truth in it. That's the secret. Humor and pathos make it alive, and you have found your style at last. You wrote with no thoughts of fame and money, and put your heart into it, my daughter. You have had the bitter. Now comes the sweet. Do your best, or grow as happy as we are in your success. If there is anything good or true in what I write, it isn't mine. I owe it all to you and mother and Beth, said Joe, more touched by her father's words than any amount of praise from the world. So, taught by love and sorrow, Joe wrote her little stories and sent them away to make friends for themselves and her, finding it a very charitable world to such humble wanderers, for they were kindly welcomed and sent home comfortable tokens to their mother, like dutiful children whom good fortune overtakes. When Amy and Laurie wrote of their engagement, Mrs. March feared that Joe would find it difficult to rejoice over it, but her fears were soon set at rest, for though Joe looked grave at first, she took it very quietly and was full of hopes and plans for the children before she read the letter twice. It was a sort of written duet wherein each glorified the other in lover-like fashion, very pleasant to read and satisfactory to think of, for no one had any objection to make. You like it, mother, said Joe, as they laid down the closely written sheets and looked at one another. Yes, I hoped it would be so, ever since Amy wrote that she had refused Fred. I felt sure that then something better than what you call the Masonry spirit had come over her. The hint here and there in her letters made me suspect that love and glory would win the day. How sharp you are, Mommy, and how silent. You never said a word to me. Our mothers have need of sharp eyes and discreet tongues when they have girls to manage. I was half afraid to put the idea into your head lest you should write and congratulate them before the thing was settled. I'm not the scatterbrain I was. You may trust me. I'm sober and sensible enough for anyone's confidant now. So you are, my dear, and I should have made you mine. Only I fancied it might pain you to learn that your teddy loved someone else. Now, mother... Did you really think I could be so silly and selfish after I'd refused his love when it was freshest, if not best? I knew you were sincere then, Joe, but lately I have thought that if he came back and asked again, you might perhaps feel like giving another answer. Forgive me, dear. Can't help seeing that you are very lonely. Sometimes there is a hungry look in your eyes goes to my heart, so I fancy that your boy might fill the empty place if he tried now. No, mother, it's better as it is. 
and I'm glad Amy has learned to love him. But you are right in one thing. I am lonely. Perhaps if Teddy had tried again, I might have said yes. Not because I love him anymore, but because I care more to be loved than when he went away. I'm glad of that, Joe, for it shows that you are getting on. There are plenty to love you, so try to be satisfied with father and mother, sisters and brothers, friends and babies, till the best love of all comes to give you your reward. Mothers are the best lovers in the world, I don't mind whispering to Mommy that I'd like to try all kinds. It's very curious. The more I try to satisfy myself with all sorts of natural affections, the more I seem to want. I'd had no idea hearts could take in so many. Mine is so elastic, it never seems full now, and I used to be quite contented with my family. Don't understand it. I do. And Mrs. March smiled her wise smile as Joe turned back the leaves to read what Amy said of Laurie. It is so beautiful to be loved as Laurie loves me. He isn't sentimental, doesn't say much about it, but I see and feel it in all he says and does, and it makes me so happy and so humble I don't seem to be the same girl I was. I never knew how good and generous and tender he was till now, for he lets me read his heart, and I find it full of noble impulses and hopes and purposes, and I'm so proud to know it's mine. He says he feels as if he could make a prosperous voyage now, with me aboard as his mate, and lots of love for ballast. I pray he may, and try to be all he believes me, for I love my gallant captain with all my heart and soul and might, and never will desert him while God lets us be together. Oh, mother, I never knew how much like heaven this world could be when two people love and live for one another. And that's our cool, reserved, and worldly Amy. Truly, love does work miracles. How very happy they must be. And Joe laid the rustling sheets together with a careful hand, as one might shut the covers of a lovely romance, which holds the reader fast till the end comes and he finds himself alone in the workaday world again. By and by, Joe roamed away upstairs, for it was rainy and she could not walk. A restless spirit possessed her, and the old feeling came again, not bitter as it once was, but a sorrowfully patient wonder why one sister should have all she asked, and the other nothing. It was not true, she knew that, and tried to put it away, but the natural craving for affection was strong, and Amy's happiness woke the hungry longing for someone to love with heart and soul and cling to while God let them be together. Up in the garret, where Joe's unquiet wanderings ended, stood four little wooden chests in a row, each marked with its owner's name, and each filled with relics of the childhood and girlhood, ended now for all. Joe glanced into them, and when she came to her own, leaned her chin on the edge and stared absently at the chaotic collection till a bundle of old exercise books caught her eye. She drew them out, turned them over, and relived that pleasant winter at kind Mrs. Kirk's. She had smiled at first, then she looked thoughtful, next sad, 
And when she came to a little message written in the professor's hand, her lips began to tremble. The books slid out of her lap, and she sat looking at the friendly words as they took a new meaning and touched a tender spot in her heart. Wait for me, my friend. I may be a little late, but I shall surely come. Oh, if you would. So kind, so good, so patient with me always. My dear old Fritz. I didn't value him half enough when I had him. But now, how I should love to see him. If everyone seems going away from me, I'm all alone. And holding the little paper fast, as if it were a promise yet to be fulfilled, Jo laid her head down on a comfortable rag bag and cried, as if in opposition to the rain pattering on the roof. Was it all self-pity, loneliness, or low spirits? Or was it the waking up of a sentiment which had bided its time as patiently as its inspirer? Who shall say?